Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Nick Langley. He is a portfolio manager of Global Listed Infrastructure Strategies at ClearBridge Investments. This conversation will cover the full gamut of infrastructure. We will look at how the definition of infrastructure has changed. We will look at the valuation issues that are very prevalent in infrastructure today as we think about cash flows, terminal values, and regulatory risks. We look at building a strategic asset allocation to an infrastructure portfolio alongside the macroeconomic cycle. We look at the composition of both listed and unlisted and how a number of institutional asset owners approach it. And finally, we'll wrap up the conversation with a discussion around ESG issues. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation. How do you, Nick, think about the infrastructure universe and how the definition of infrastructure has evolved over the last few years? Thanks, Alex. You know, we think about infrastructure from a, a what is core infrastructure perspective. And and really, as we categorise that, we think about monopoly assets that provide an essential service to a community or to an economy. Um, given that they're monopolies, generally they are regulated or governed by some sort of concession agreement or long-term uh, agreement, such as a power price agreement. Uh, but ultimately, they have predictable cash flows over the longer term, and they're you know, generally linked. Those cash flows are generally linked to inflation. So I guess one of the things that keeps coming up in infrastructure is a crossover almost between real estate and infrastructure. How do you think about that potential differential? There's certainly an, an intersection between the two, and it, and it really happens around uh, the communications space from our perspective. Um, and, if, and if you think about the, you know, the different assets within that, you've got your wireless tower companies uh, that are really, you know, just a, a relatively simple piece of infrastructure on a piece of land, you know, dotted across um, both urban and, and, and rural areas. And, and so that, that really, from our perspective, um, does sit in, in infrastructure in our space because the, the contracts uh, around that infrastructure are generally quite long dated, 15 or 20 year contracts, they're inflation linked. Uh, but at the same time, those companies are structured as REITs uh, because they own a large, large amount of land. And so they do sit in the REIT indices and, and so on, particularly in the, in the US. And if you take a step down and say, well, what about data centers? From our perspective, uh, data centers do not meet infrastructure because uh, the contracts that, that govern the revenue generation are not long enough in duration. You know, we do we do see the odd one that's out at kind of 15 or 20 years, but generally they're much shorter, up to three years in, in duration. And from our perspective, that doesn't give you the predictability of cash flows that you should have from, from infrastructure. And then the, the final area is, uh, you know, satellite communication companies. And in the old days, you know, you'd put up these things called geostationary satellites, uh, orbit orbit the Earth at the, at the same rotation as the, as the Earth, You'd sign 15-year contracts on those. And so we would call those infrastructure because when you launched a satellite, you'd have 15 years of, of, uh, of revenue pretty much in the bag. Um, today, 
with uh, middle Earth orbit and low Earth orbit satellites, yeah, and a, and, a, and a propensity to do more and more data through through the satellite companies. Uh, those contracts have become a lot shorter. So those were infrastructure, but in our view, they will no longer be infrastructure within the next few years. Let's um, look specifically at, at toll roads because uh, uh, these very heavy asset-driven infrastructure projects. How much do you think about the actually underlying assets versus the management that runs these assets? How do you sort of differentiate the business operational piece to the infrastructure versus the actual underlying asset value? So, so the for, for most infrastructure companies, um, the management of the infrastructure is relatively simple. Um, you know, there's no there's no funky technologies or anything anything like that, uh, and so you know, operationally, you don't get a lot that goes wrong. Um, sure. You know, electricity networks, you've got lots of storms and so on coming through and you've got to have crews out uh, and, and you know, fixing them and so on. Uh, but for a toll road, you know, listen, you resurface the road every every now and again. Uh, you, you make sure that nobody, no broken down vehicles sit in the middle of the road and you fix the potholes. Um, there is another very important angle to it, though, which is non-operational. And that is uh, the relationship that you have with stakeholders. Uh, and, and this is going to become more of a you know a hot hot button topic over over time. And obviously, from the toll road perspective, it's it's the relationship with government uh, that that your concession agreement is is often with um, the planning for traffic over time, the way traffic moves through cities around cities, and and how that traffic is going to change over time. Particularly as we as we look forward to you know autonomous electric vehicles in the in the case of toll roads. There's a lot to talk about when we when we think about government and government policy. But before we get there, I wanted to think more broadly around the infrastructure universe, more globally. Obviously, for investors that sit in Australia, what do you see globally that you don't see locally from an infrastructure point of view? So we've got a we've got a reasonable representation of infrastructure locally. There's just not much of it, um, you know. So so when you look globally. Uh, we cover uh, about 200 companies in detail, uh, with about five trillion US dollars of uh, of assets. Uh, you know, within that cohort of companies, you know, you've got Sydney Airport, you've got uh, Transurban, you've got Horizon on the on the rail side, uh, you've got Spark and and uh, Osnet on the on the electricity and and some gas. You've got APA. Um, group with pipelines and so on. So you've got you know a, a reasonable range of of different infrastructure companies. It's just overseas. You've got a whole lot more of them, um, and importantly, you're you've got the ability to diversify different regulatory and and sovereign risks and so on as well. Let's then move to the the next stage, which is valuation. Um, markets are are pretty hot just generally. Is infrastructure received that same liquidity boost? That the rest of the equity market has seemed to have picked up as well. Not interestingly, not to the same extent. Um, and and I'd also argue that the that the equity market is not homogenous. So there are you know certain sectors, obviously you know big cap uh, tech uh, and and growth sectors have done extremely well. Uh, value has not done well, um, and and you know infrastructure. Uh, as a whole, has has had some challenges, particularly at the end of infrastructure like airports, some toll roads that are a bit more um, uh, economically sensitive. 
Uh, and so airports, for example, you know, it's going to take a long time for borders to open and for traffic to return to normal for them. Um, so for a number of those companies, you know, they, they haven't had the significant recovery that we've seen uh, in, in other parts of equity markets. I'm curious, you know, obviously COVID's had a very big impact to a lot of infrastructure. How do you think about the impact to cash flows here and now and for the next few years versus potential real long-term changes to these asset valuations and potentially their terminal value impact? Yeah, so, you know, as, as we run financial models on our on our companies, uh, you know, they're akin to to a lot of models that, that uh, some of you are unlisted. Uh, listeners will be will be running. So, you know, we're usually running thirty or forty years worth of worth of cash flows, and and obviously once you once you get out beyond a few years, you you really you're in a bit of a crystal ball uh, situation. And so, uh, you need to break the cash flows down into different components. You've got, you know, how is regulation going to evolve over that time, and what implications will that have for your cash flows? What are the potential, you know, cyclical implications for cash flows, and then what are the what are the larger secular themes that may come through, and that you know that may be um, because of public policy, uh, it, it may be you know technological de- advances over time, you know the the uh, autonomous electric vehicles, for example, uh, and so you know we end up running a series of different scenarios and sensitivities. Um, for our uh, for our cash flows over time to understand you know what the different valuation implications might be uh, from you know uh, a different a different kind of set of uh, future outcomes. Earlier, you mentioned about government um, impact, um, and so I wanted to talk more specifically. We're seeing a lot of political activism, social uh, unrest. Uh, the cost of living is becoming more and more prominent for people. Uh, infrastructure is a big part of people's day-to-day, whether it's the water, it's the toll roads and so forth. How do you think about that impact in infrastructure more broadly? Yeah, so so conceptually, uh, you know, the agreement between, between governments and infrastructure companies is that, uh, you know, the infrastructure company is a monopoly and therefore, uh, you know, agrees to some sort of regulation. Uh, but the flip side of that is that, the infrastructure company will receive, you know, a fair and appropriate return on its asset base, and so, you know, as you continue to invest in the asset base to provide that essential service to a community or an economy, then you should be fairly remunerated for that. Um, and and listen, I suspect where where the rubber is going to meet the road, you know, in the future is government public policy. Uh, you know, driven by populations, let's be clear, is going to push more and more towards green infrastructure, renewable energy, and so on. And and frankly, that is going to require a substantial, and, and I mean unbelievably large, uh, amount of investment into our infrastructure around the globe. And as that happens, and you provide a reasonable return to the infrastructure companies, then the prices that customers pay are going to go up. And, and that's going to be a bit of a rub where, you know, people people want to go more green, uh, uh, but but they'll be pushing back against the cost of that because it is going to be, you know, a sizable portion of household budgets. Is there a risk that you may see more nationalisation as governments try to overcome some of that pushback? Listen, I don't think so. Um, and, and I think for the, the reason for that is that 
ultimately, uh, you know, governments understand that whilst they could finance these businesses more cheaply, they probably can't run them as well as as the private sector can run them. Uh, and that's not just you know the the ongoing operation, uh, but it's also uh, ensuring that you know, new projects get get completed on time and and on budget and and frankly you know the lights don't go out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just ask California. There's enough there's enough trouble already when you when you don't quite get the regulation or the in, or the incentives right. So I, I think I think wholesale nationalisation is is probably out. The the one risk I would um, I would highlight though is you know in coming decades where we move maybe to a, a universal basic income uh, kind of approach within within societies, you know, it is possible that governments say, well, we've got to try and keep our people productive and maybe we should nationalise some of these assets and, and have everybody working for the postal system again or something like that. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are certain scenarios where you could see a, a big government approach to, uh, you know, to thinking around universal basic incomes and so on, and that could affect... The, the infrastructure sector. How do you then take that that potential and put it into a risk premium for these type of for these assets? Yeah, and and uh, listen, really tricky. Uh, you know, there's been a recent example of, of this with the with the UK water sector, uh, and you know when when Corbyn uh, was in charge of the Labor Party in the opposition, uh, they had a, a stated policy of uh, of actually moving towards nationalisation of, of key infrastructure. And in, in the electricity space, you know, it was going to cost them something like seven percentage points of, of GD, debt to GDP to, to uh, nationalise the assets. And your average household was going to save something like £20 um, on, their, on their electricity bills on, a, on an annual basis. So, you know, a, a lot of cost in terms of, of additional debt, um, not a lot of benefit at a, at a household level. But as we thought about that, we then worked through, okay, what what protections are in place, be it uh, legislative or regulatory or bilateral treaties, uh, which the UK has with another number of sovereign wealth funds and so on, uh, what protections are in place for investors? And therefore, commercially, what price would the government have to pay to be able to do that? And if you plug that into your models, then you know, is uh, are you able to buy stock now at a reasonable price? And let's be clear, we were able to buy stock in those companies at less than their regulated value, uh, and they generally trade at a at a ten or fifteen percent premium to the regulated value in the listed market, and about a twenty five to thirty five percent premium in the unlisted market. Uh, so we were able to you know buy those at less than their regulated value, and as the uh, as the cloud of nationalisation cleared. Uh, you know, we're able to then sell that stock and make a pretty good turn of profit on it. Mm-hmm. Two two other inputs that are critical, obviously, to to valuation, which is inflation uh, and tax assumptions. Uh, I'm curious of, of what you're thinking there um, around those two inputs. Yeah, so so you know, inflation is key, um, and most of in, most infrastructure companies have a link to inflation in their in their cash flow. So. You know, they get to increase their prices by inflation each year, uh, and so they are positive. Valuations are positively correlated uh, to inflation. Uh, so, if you assume inflation is going to be higher in, in the future, then actually the valuations in this space should increase. Uh, but it plays into cash flows and also into discount rates. So, higher inflation should also lead to 
you know, higher discount rates because your risk-free rate is, is going to be increasing as well. So there are some offsets there. Um, we run a lot of scenario and, and sensitivity analysis just to understand, you know, how big that implication might be. And we also have the ability, obviously, we're in listed markets, so we've got liquidity to adjust the weightings in the portfolio. So if you're moving into a disinflation environment, um, as, say, we are in the UK at the moment, uh, then... Uh, you, you want to cycle capital away from uh, some of those uh, some of those regulatory regimes that have a direct pass-through of inflation. And in the UK, uh, the regulated asset base or, or the RCV gets indexed to inflation each year. So as inflation goes down, your asset base goes uh, inflates by a lower number. If there's outright deflation, then you can have issues with debt covenants and so on. Whereas in the US, the utilities there are regulated on a, on a nominal level. So if you get lower inflation, disinflation, deflation, then actually you're making more money out of those companies. Uh, and so the ability to shift capital around in that context is pretty important as well. That's a, a good place to transition. As you think about uh, you know the building up of your portfolio, is there a strategic asset allocation that you then try to match to a macroeconomic piece of the cycle where, we're at, where we are in the cycle? How do, how do you think about portfolio construction? Well, our approach is to come at it from an absolute return perspective. So, you know, the primary benchmark that we use is G7 inflation plus 5.5%. And so we're trying to deliver to our clients 5.5% real return over, you know, rolling five-year periods, call it a, a, an economic cycle. Uh, and so we're not starting with an equity index and deciding to go overweight or underweight particular stocks. We're stepping back and saying, where are we going to find the best risk-adjusted returns for uh, for for our our investors? And and so we pick companies first, and then the regional and the sector weightings kind of fall out of of that approach. Uh, you know, as as you think about that composition, you know, how much of these stocks, as they sit in the portfolio, are really a strategic conversation? or almost more tactical in terms of looking at dislocations in valuations and you're taking advantage of those and you're constantly then rebalancing? So, so obviously in the listed market, we you have liquidity. So you can treat uh, a certain amount of the exposure to a, to a company that has a great set of assets, good regulatory regime, wonderful management. You can treat that as core uh, and then you can dial up or down that exposure over time. Um, and if you think about it, you know, say from a, from a toll road perspective, uh, and you say, well, you know, I want to own more of that road when, when you know, GDP expectations and growth expectations are improving, um, or inflation expectations are, are going to be higher. Um, you know, I want to own a little bit less of that road if we're heading into a recessionary environment. I'd like to own some more of the utilities because you know they're not economically sensitive. They don't. Uh, the remuneration doesn't generally change as a result of you know usage of gas or water or, or electricity and so on. How much do you then think the the blend or the composition of these stocks is based on the macroeconomic part of where we are in the cycle versus actual valuation decisions? Conventional wisdom around portfolio construction would say, uh, as you get later into the cycle, you should own more of the utility companies that get remunerated based on their assets. Uh, and then as you go through the recession and you come out the other side and you get into a more growth-oriented environment, 
then you should switch to owning more of those infrastructure companies where they might have you know, the pricing side of their business model set by regulation or concession contract, but they're exposed to volumes. And so therefore they're exposed to economic activity. And, and so that, that positioning then uh, is partly a macro call, but it's gonna be partly uh, your view on the assumptions that you're putting into your financial model. Because if you're expecting you know, higher growth in the, in the future and, and higher rates, then uh, infrastructure companies are going to look more attractive than utility companies, and the reverse is also true. How much pressure do you find in terms of valuations as traditional fixed interest doesn't really provide the defensive characteristics, doesn't provide the cash flows? Um, are you seeing a lot more flows then moving into infrastructure assets that have these strong cash flows that, you, that everyone's looking for? We, so we have seen uh, a significant tailwind from investors chasing yield in the in the sector, and you know, some it's gone into property or real estate as well. Uh, you know, we launched a uh, a higher yielding product about um, ten years ago. It did you know not a lot for five years, and then in the last five years, it has been a source of significant inflows for for us as a as a business, and that's because you know it's got. Uh, pretty steady income, running yield about five percent or so per annum, uh, and it's got that more defensive kind of core infrastructure, mostly utility uh, 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 companies in the in the portfolio, providing that defense in in shaky markets, uh, and so that's a, that's an ideal product to to replace some of that that fixed income exposure in portfolios. Has that push or that weight of money that's come in as the, as, they, as the chase for yields there and also some of the passive indices or passive investors that are coming in, has that potentially decreased the volatility that we've seen in infrastructure assets or infrastructure stocks? We haven't seen that. Um, so, so, yes, it's provided some reg- regular you know, support in, in markets for some of those names. Um, but if I look across the universe – you know, we manage our portfolio to a, to an ex ante risk or volatility of, of sort of eight to ten percent annualized. Um, you know, that's versus global equities up around the fifteen percent level, uh, and and that really hasn't changed in in the last ten years. Uh, there are some pockets where you know, if you take a look at um, at the wireless communication uh, tower businesses we talked about earlier, you know, American Tower, Crown Castle, SBA Communications in the US. In those, as they've uh, transitioned into REIT structures, you know they are very large companies. American Tower is a hundred billion dollar company, uh, and so as you put that into a REIT universe, you know there's a lot of REIT investors that need to own that as as part of their uh, as part of their indexing system. Uh, and so there are areas where you've seen, you know, for technical reasons, uh, a lot of trading in, in particular names. But it really it hasn't changed the volatility, and the you know the volatility is a um, is a comp- is complicated by the um, changing composition of equity indices themselves as well. Um, you know, as you get a whole lot more tech and so on into into particularly the U.S. indices, uh, that that changes some of the the volatility and the beta characteristics of uh, of the infrastructure companies. One of the questions that I have to ask is that a lot of the institutional investors that I deal with, obviously through our events, always think about infrastructure being unlisted. That's their preference because they say they can hide the volatility or they don't have the volatility that's 
as, as present because valuation only happens quarterly or half yearly or yearly. Listed, obviously, there's mark-to-market pricing daily. Um, and I was curious in terms of when you talk to institutional investors, how do they think about or how do they potentially use listed infrastructure alongside their existing listed or sorry, unlisted um, parts of their portfolio? Yeah, yeah, listen, you know, it's a, it's a thorny issue because at their heart, it's the same assets that we're talking about, uh, whether it's listed or unlisted, same regulators providing same returns. And in fact, over the longer term, you're getting pretty much the same return profile out of out of listed as you are unlisted. Um, certainly, you know some funds will do better than others, etc. Um, but but underlying same returns and and you know it makes sense because it's a it's the same returns being allowed by the regulators. Um, the trade off you, you're right is volatility versus liquidity, um, and so if we hone on uh, hone in on those two, you know from the volatility side, it, it's a it's about you know. A mark-to-model approach in in unlisted versus a mark-to-market approach in in the listed. Um, it's purely timeframes. You know, we did some work. Uh, this is going back ten years or so now, but we did some work to show if you take a uh, a single price point each year uh, for listed and for unlisted, you've got a ninety percent correlation between the two of them, uh, and that makes sense because you know valuers in the unlisted world. Uh, you know, look back on on listed and what's going on in the listed stocks and adjust, you know, cost of capital and EBITDA multiples and RAP multiples and so on uh, accordingly. Uh, but, you know, when you get down to to that daily pricing cycle, then, then yes, listed is very volatile. Uh, you know, totally agree with that. Um, the flip side is you've got you've got the liquidity. And, and that's how uh, a lot of our institutional, institutional investors are thinking about it. So they're saying, well, you know, I am willing to take some volatility in that part of my portfolio, and that's a threshold question because if you're not willing to do that, then stick with unlisted. Uh, if I am willing to take some volatility, then I have the ability to to say, well, you know, I've got daily tradability on the listed portion of my portfolio. The unlisted portion, listen, it might be six month or twelve month liquidity, so that's really more of a strategic, and then I can run the tactical allocation side through the listed market. And so you've got the ability to you know, increase or decrease your allocation by, by flipping some more money into, into listed. You've got the ability to warehouse money in listed while you're waiting for it to get called down into unlisted opportunities. And the flip side, when it comes back from, from those unlisted funds returning capital, then you can pop it into the listed market for a period of time. Uh, so, so that's how they're, they're you know, thinking about that. And then uh, we have had discussions with a number of investors about running, you know, sort of completion portfolios or overlay portfolios. So essentially using the listed market to complement what they're doing on the, on the unlisted side. And it might be, you know, I don't have enough GDP exposure in my unlisted portfolio. Can you get me a bunch of toll roads and airports? Or the flip side, you know, I want to get some more... Uh, uh, utility exposure in the US, or I want to get some renewable exposure in, in Europe, type of thing. Are there specific assets that maybe aren't available um, in the unlisted space that are only available via the listed environment? In the, in the unlisted space, you are uh, constrained by you know the deals that get done, the assets that become available, uh, and so. You know there are a lot of of core assets that we see in the you know particularly in the electricity space and in 
you know, the listed world that you don't really get in in unlisted land. And and there you're talking, you know, poles, wires, and and you know, pipes in in the gas and the in the water space. Um, there are pockets around the world where you can get access to to you know those assets um, in unlisted, but it's not not very general. Uh, the corollary of that is, you know, in the in the US, we're a little light on in terms of airport exposures and toll road exposures, um, and that's probably the only hole that's in the in the listed universe globally. Otherwise. You know, pretty much everywhere we go, we've got the ability to to build in some some utility or some infrastructure exposure. I'm curious in terms of the opportunity for for growth. That's obviously a key part of some of these assets. Do you feel that you end up focusing more on developed countries or developing emerging markets? How do you think about that composition? Yeah, we we do. Uh, we have much higher costs of capital uh, for emerging market companies, uh, and and that recognises. Generally, the the more nascent nature of um, regulation and or uh, a, uh, a you know less than ideal kind of public policy um, arrangement, and, and so that as the evolution of public policy becomes less clear, then then clearly you need a much higher return to invest into into that kind of uh, into that region. Uh, we do run a dedicated emerging market strategy. Um, so it's an it's an area that we you know cover and we look at pretty closely, uh, but in our portfolios, you know, we are generally um, seventy five to ninety five percent exposed to developed markets. Mm-hmm. So the issue that we definitely can't miss is ESG. Uh, it's across all asset classes now. I'm curious in terms of how does it apply specifically to the infrastructure uh, environment. What are the key issues that you end up looking at? So it's. It's a really difficult area, and that's because the data that you get from the ESG researchers, you know, is not of the same level of quality across all companies and all regions and all sectors. Uh, and so that becomes very challenging. We we have spent many years uh, kind of outsourcing um, that approach, and you know, in the in the last year or so, we've actually internalised a lot of that research. So. Uh, you know, we still we still use external researchers such as Sustainalytics, um, now owned by Morningstar, uh, and we've used them since since 2012. Uh, but in the last couple of years, we've done a lot more of it internally to ensure that you know we actually have comparability across sectors and and across regions. And in our view, um, a large amount of the current ESG issues that you should be focusing on actually should flow into cash flows. So it should be scenarios that you are running on things like, you know, the direction of public policy vis-a-vis climate change, renewable energy, and and so on. Uh, and and you know, there's not many uh, ESG houses that will help you with those kind of scenarios. That's something that you really need to drive out of the investment side of the business. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Nick. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.